Section 3 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kay Hand. Queen Elizabeth, Part 1. A.D. 1533 to 1603. Woman as a Sovereign. I do not present Queen Elizabeth either as a very interesting or as a faultless woman. As a woman, she is not a popular favorite but it is my object to present her as a queen, to show with what dignity and ability a woman may fill one of the most difficult and responsible stations of the world. It is certain that we associate with her a very prosperous and successful reign, and if she was lacking in those feminine qualities which make woman interesting to man, we are constrained to admire her for those talents and virtues which shed luster around a throne. She is unquestionably one of the links in the history of England and of modern civilization, and her reign is so remarkable, considering the difficulties with which she had to contend, that she may justly be regarded as one of the benefactors of her age and country. It is a pleasant task to point out the greatness, rather than the defects, of so illustrious a woman. It is my main object to describe her services to her country, for it is by services that all monarchs are to be judged, and all sovereigns, especially those armed with great power, are exposed to unusual temptations, which must ever qualify our judgments. Even bad men, like Caesar, Richelieu, and Napoleon, have obtained favorable verdicts in view of their services. And when sovereigns, whose characters have been sullied by weaknesses and effects, yet who have escaped great crimes and scandals and devoted themselves to the good of their country, have proved themselves to be wise, enlightened, and patriotic, great praise has been awarded to them. Thus Henry the Fourth of France and William the Third of England have been admired in spite of their defects. Queen Elizabeth is the first among the great female sovereigns of the world with whose reign we associate a decided progress in national wealth, power, and prosperity, so that she ranks with the great men who have administered kingdoms. If I can prove this fact, the sex should be proud of so illustrious a woman, and should be charitable to those foibles which sullied the beauty of her character, since they were in part faults of the age, and developed by the circumstances which surrounded her. She was born in the year 1533, the rough age of Luther, when Charles V was dreaming of establishing a united continental military empire, and when the princes of the House of Valois were battling with the ideas of the Reformation. An earnest, revolutionary, and progressive age. She was educated as the second daughter of Henry VIII naturally would be, having the celebrated Ascom as her tutor in Greek, Latin, French, and Italian. She was precocious as well as studious, and astonished her teachers by her attainments. She was probably the best educated woman in England next to Lady Jane Grey, and she excelled in those departments of knowledge for which novels have given such distaste in these more enlightened times. Elizabeth was a mere girl when her mother, Anne Boylan, was executed for infidelities and levities to which her husband could not be blind. Had he been less suspicious, a cruel execution, which nothing short of high treason could have justified even in that rough age. Though her birth was declared to be illegitimate by her cruel and unscrupulous father, yet she was treated as a princess. She was seventeen when her hateful old father died, and during the six years when the government was in the hands of Somerset, Edward the Sixth being a minor, Elizabeth was exposed to no peculiar perils except those of the heart. It is said that Sir Thomas Seymour, brother to the protector, made a strong impression on her, and that she would have married him had the council consented. By nature, Elizabeth was affectionate, though prudent. 
her love for seymour was uncalculating and unselfish though he was unworthy of it indeed it was her misfortune to always misplace her affections which is so often the case in the marriages of superior women as if they loved the image merely which their own minds created as dante did when he bowed down to beatrice when we see intellectual men choosing weak and silly women for wives and women of exalted character selecting unworthy and wicked husbands it does seem as if providence determines all matrimonial unions independently of our own wills and settled purposes how often is wealth wedded to poverty beauty to ugliness and amiability to ill-temper the hard cold unsocial unsympathetic wooden scheming selfish man is the only one who seems to attain his end since he can bide his time wait for somebody to fancy him elizabeth had that mixed character which made her life a perpetual conflict between her inclinations and her interests her generous impulses and affectionate nature made her peculiarly susceptible while her prudence and her pride kept her from a foolish marriage she may have loved unwisely but she had sufficient self-control to prevent a mesalliance while she may have resigned herself at times to the fascinations of accomplished men she yet fathomed the abyss into which imprudence would bury her forever on the accession of mary her elder sister daughter of catherine of aragon elizabeth's position was exceedingly critical exposed as she was to the intrigues of the catholics and the jealousy of the queen and when we remember that the great question and issue of that age was whether the catholic or protestant religion should have the ascendancy and that this ascendancy seemed to hinge upon the private inclinations of the sovereign who in the furtherance of this great end would scruple at nothing to accomplish it and that the greatest crimes committed for its sake would be justified by all the sophistries that religious partisanship could furnish and be upheld by all bigots and statesmen as well as priests it is really remarkable that elizabeth was spared for mary was not only urged on to the severest measures by gardiner and bonner the bishops of winchester and london and by all the influences of rome to which she was devoted body and soul yea by all her confidential advisers in the state to save themselves from future contingencies but she was also jealous of her sister as elizabeth was afterwards jealous of mary stuart and it would have been as easy for mary to execute elizabeth as it was for elizabeth to execute the queen of scots or henry the eighth to behead his wives and such a crime would have been excused as readily as the execution of somerset or of the lady jane grey both from political necessity and religious expediency elizabeth was indeed subjected to great humiliations and even compelled to sue for her life what more piteous than her letter to mary begging only for an interview wherefore i humbly beseech your majesty to let me answer before yourself and once again kneeling with humbleness of heart i earnestly crave to speak to your highness which i would not be so bold as to desire if i knew not myself most clear as i know myself most true here is a woman pleading for her life to a sister to whom she had done no wrong and whose only crime was in being that sister's heir what an illustration of the jealousy of royalty and the bitterness of religious feuds and what a contrast in this servile speech to that arrogance which elizabeth afterward assumed towards her parliament and greatest lords ah to what cringing meanness are most people reduced by adversity in what pride are we apt to indulge in the hour of triumph how circumstances change the whole appearance of our lives elizabeth however in order to save her life was obliged to dissemble if her true protestant opinions had been avowed i doubt if she could have escaped we do not see in this dissimulation anything very lofty yet she acted with singular tact and discretion it is creditable however to mary that she did not execute her sister 
she showed herself more noble than Elizabeth did later in her treatment of the Queen of Scots. History calls her the Bloody Mary, and it must be admitted that she was the victim and slave of religious bigotry, and that she sanctioned many bloody executions. And yet it would appear that her nature was, after all, affectionate, which is evinced in the fact that she did spare the life of Elizabeth. Here her better impulses gained the victory of her craft and policy and religious intolerance, and rescued her name from the infamy to which such a crime would have doomed her, and which her church would have sanctioned, and in which it would have rejoiced as much as it did in the slaughter of St. Bartholomew. The crocodile tears which Elizabeth is said to have shed when the death of her sister Mary was announced to her at Hatfield were soon wiped away in the pomps and enthusiasms which hailed her accession to the throne. This was in 1558, when she was twenty-five, in the fullness of her attractions and powers. Great expectations were formed of her wisdom and genius. She had passed through severe experiences. She had led a life of study and reflection. She was gifted with talents and graces. Her accomplishments, her misfortunes, and her brilliant youth exalted into passionate homage the principle of loyalty, and led to extravagant panegyrics. She was good-looking, if she was not beautiful, since the expression of her countenance showed benignity, culture, and vivacity. She had piercing dark eyes, a clear complexion, and animated features. She was in perfect health, capable of great fatigue, apt in business, sagacious, industrious, witty, learned, and fond of being surrounded with illustrious men. She was high church in her sympathies, yet a Protestant in the breadth of her views and in the fullness of her reforms. Above all, she was patriotic and disinterested in her efforts to develop the resources of her kingdom and to preserve it from entangling wars. The kingdom was far from being prosperous when Elizabeth assumed the reins of the government, and it is the enormous stride in civilization which England made during her reign, beset with so many perils, which constitutes her chief claim to the admiration of mankind. Let it be borne in mind that she began her rule in perplexities, anxieties, and embarrassments. The crown was encumbered with debts, the nobles were ambitious and factious. The people were poor, dispirited, unimportant, and distracted by the claims of two hostile religions. Only one bishop in the whole realm was found willing to crown her. Scotland was convulsed with factions, and was a standing menace, growing out of the marriage of Mary Stuart with a French prince. Barbarous Ireland was in a state of chronic rebellion. France, Spain, and Rome were decidedly hostile, and all Catholic Europe aimed at the overthrow of England. Philip II had adopted the dying injunction of his father to extinguish the Protestant religion, and the princes of the House of Valois were leagued with Rome for the attainment of this end. At home, Elizabeth had to contend with a jealous parliament, a factious nobility, an empty purse, and a divided people. The people generally were rude and uneducated, the language was undeveloped, education was chiefly confined to nobles and priests, the poor were oppressed by feudal laws. No great work in English history, poetry, or philosophy had yet appeared. The comforts and luxuries of life were scarcely enjoyed even by the rich. Chimneys were just beginning to be used. The people slept on mats of straw, they ate without forks on pewter or wooden platters, they drank neither tea nor coffee, but drank what their ancestors did in the forests of Germany, beer. Their houses, thatched with straw, were dark, dingy, and uncomfortable. Commerce was small, manufactures were in their infancy, the coin was debased, and money was scarce. Trade was in the hands of monopolists, coaches were almost unknown, the roads were impassable except for horsemen, and were infested with robbers. Only the rich could afford wheat and bread, agricultural implements were of the most primitive kind, 
Animal food, for the greater part of the year, was eaten only in a salted state. Enterprise of all kinds was restricted within narrow limits. Beggars and vagrants were so numerous that the most stringent laws were necessary to protect the people against them. Profane swearing was nearly universal. The methods of executing capital punishments were revolting. The rudest sports amused the people. The parochial clergy were ignorant and sensual. Country squires sought nothing higher than fox-hunting. It took several days for letters to reach the distant counties. The population numbered only four millions. There was nothing grand and imposing in art but the palaces of nobles and the Gothic monuments of medieval Europe. Such was Merry England on the accession of Elizabeth to the throne. A rude nation of feudal nobles, rural squires, and ignorant people, who toiled for a mere pittance on the lands of cold, unsympathetic masters, without books, without schools, without privileges, without rights, except to breathe the common air and indulge in coarse pleasures and religious holidays and village fetes. On the other hand, it must be admitted that the people were loyal, religious, and brave, that they had the fear of God before their eyes and felt personal responsibility to him, so that crimes were uncommon except among the lowest and most abandoned, that family ties were strong, that simple hospitalities were everywhere exercised, that healthy pleasures stimulated no inordinate desires, that the people, if poor, had enough to eat and drink, that service was not held to be degrading, that churches were not deserted, that books, what few there were, did not enervate or demoralize, that science did not attempt to ignore the moral government of God, that laws were a terror to evildoers, that philanthropists did not seek to reform the world by mechanical inventions or elevate society by upholding the majesty of man rather than the majesty of God, teaching the infallibility of congregated masses of ignorance, inexperience, and conceit. Even in those rude times there were the certitudes of religious faith, of domestic endearments, of patriotic devotion, of respect for parents, of loyalty to rulers, of kindness to the poor and miserable. There were the latent fires of freedom, the impulses of generous enthusiasm, and resignation to the ills which could not be removed. So that in England, in Elizabeth's time, there was a noble material for Christianity and art and literature to work upon, and to develop a civilization such as had not previously existed on this earth, a civilization destined to spread throughout the world in new institutions, inventions, laws, language, and literature, binding hostile races together and proclaiming the sovereignty of intelligence, the nos crate of the old Ionian philosophers, with that higher sovereignty which Moses based upon the Ten Commandments, and that higher law still which Jesus taught upon the mount. Yet, with all this fine but rude material for future greatness, it was nevertheless a glaring fact that the condition of England on the accession of Elizabeth was most discouraging. A poor and scattered agricultural nation, without a navy of any size, without a regular army, with factions in every quarter, with struggling and contending religious parties, with a jealous parliament of unenlightened country squires, yet a nation seriously threatened by the most powerful monarchies of the continent, who detested the doctrines which were then taking root in the land. Against the cabals of Rome, the navies of Spain, and the armies of France, alike hostile and dangerous, England could make but a feeble show of physical forces, and was protected only by her insular position. The public dangers were so imminent that there was needed not only a strong hand, but a stout heart and a wise head at the helm. Excessive caution was necessary, perpetual vigilance was imperative, a single imprudent measure might be fatal in such exigencies. 
and this accounts for the vacillating policy of Elizabeth, so often condemned by historians. It did not proceed from weakness of head, but from real necessity occasioned by constant embarrassments and changing circumstances. According to all the canons of expediency, it was the sign of a sagacious ruler to temporize and promise and deceive in that sad perplexity. Governments, thus far in the history of nations, have been carried on upon different principles from those that bind the conduct of individuals, especially when the weak contend against the strong. This, abstractly, is not to be defended. Governments and individuals alike are bound by the same laws of immutable morality in their general relations, but the rules of war are different from the rules of peace. Governments are expediencies to suit peculiar crises and exigencies. A man assaulted by robbers would be a fool to fall back on the passive virtues of non-resistance. Elizabeth had to deal both with religious bigots and unscrupulous kings. We may be disgusted with the course she felt it politic to pursue, but it proved successful. A more generous and open course might have precipitated an attack when she was unprepared and defenseless. Her dalliances and the expediencies and dissimulations delayed the evil day, until she was ready for the death struggle, and when the tempest of angry human forces finally broke upon her defenseless head, she was saved only by a storm of wind and rain which Providence kindly and opportunely sent. Had the invincible armada been permitted to invade England at the beginning of her reign, there probably would have been another Spanish conquest. What chance would the untrained militia of a scattered population, without fortresses or walled cities or military leaders of skill, have had against the veteran soldiers who were marshaled under Philip II, with all the experiences learned in the wars of Charles V and in the conquest of Peru and Mexico, aided too by the forces of France and the terrors of the Vatican and the money of the Flemish manufacturers? It was the dictate of self-preservation which induced Elizabeth to prevaricate and to deceive the powerful monarchs who were in a league against her. If ever lying and cheating were justifiable, they were then. If political Jesuitism is ever defensible, it was in the 16th century. So that I cannot be hard on the embarrassed queen for a policy which on the strict principles of morality it would be difficult to defend. It was a dark age of conspiracies, rebellions, and cabals. In dealing with the complicated relations of government in that day, there were no recognized principles but those of expediency. Even in our own times, expediency rather than right too often seems to guide nations. It is not just and fair, therefore, to expect from a sovereign, in Queen Elizabeth's time, that openness and fairness which are the results only of a higher national civilization. What would be blots on government today were not deemed blots in the 16th century. Elizabeth must be judged by the standards of her age, not of ours, in her official and public acts. We must remember also that this great queen was endorsed, supported, and even instructed by the ablest and wisest and most patriotic statesmen that were known to her generation. Lord Burley, her prime minister, was a marvel of political insight, industry, and fidelity. If he had not the commanding genius of Thomas Cromwell or the ambitious foresight of Richelieu, he surpassed the statesmen of his day in patriotic zeal and in disinterested labors, not to extend the boundaries of the empire, but to develop national resources and make the country strong for defense. He was a plodding, wary, cautious, far-seeing, long-headed old statesman, whose opinions it was not safe for Elizabeth to oppose, and although she was arbitrary and opinionated herself, she generally followed Burley's counsels unwillingly at times, but firmly when she perceived the necessity. For she was, with all her pertinacity, open to conviction of reason. 
I cannot deny that she sometimes headed off her prime minister and deceived him, and otherwise complicated the difficulties that beset her reign, but this was only when she felt a strong personal repugnance to the state measures which he found it imperative to pursue. After all, Elizabeth was a woman, and the woman was not utterly lost in the queen. It is greatly to her credit, however, that she retained the services of this old statesman for forty years, and that she filled the great offices in the state and church with men of experience, genius, and wisdom. She made Parker the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man of remarkable moderation and breadth of mind, whose reforms were carried on without exciting hostilities, and have survived the fanaticisms and hostile attacks of generations. Walsingham, her ambassador at Paris, and afterwards her secretary of state, ferreted out the plots of the Jesuits and the intrigues of hostile courts, and rendered priceless service by his acuteness and diligence. Lord Effingham, one of the Howards, defeated the invincible armada. Sir Thomas Gresham managed her finances so ably that she was never without money. Coke was her attorney. Sir Nicholas Bacon, the ablest lawyer in the realm and a staunch Protestant, was her lord keeper, while his illustrious son, the immortal Francis Bacon, though not adequately rewarded, was always consulted by the queen in great legal difficulties. I say nothing of those elegant and gallant men who were the ornaments of her court and in some instances the generals of her armies and the admirals of her navies, Sackville, Raleigh, Sidney, not to mention Essex and Leicester, all of whom were distinguished for talents and services, men who had no equals in their respective provinces, so gifted that it is difficult to determine whether the greatness of her reign was more owing to the talents of the ministers or to the wisdom of the queen herself. Unless she had been a great woman, I doubt whether she would have discerned the merits of these men and employed them in her service and kept them so long in office. It was by these great men that Elizabeth was ruled, so far as she was ruled at all, not by favorites like her successors, James and Charles. The favorites at the court of Elizabeth were rarely trusted with great powers, unless they were men of signal abilities, and regarded as such by the nation itself. While she lavished favors upon them, sometimes to the disgust of the old nobility, she was never ruled by them, as James was by Buckingham, and Louis the Fifteenth by Madame de Pompadour. Elizabeth was not above coquetry, it is true, but after toying with Leicester and Raleigh, never though to the serious injury of her reputation as a woman, she would retire to the cabinet of her ministers and yield to the sage suggestions of Burley and Walsingham. At her council board she was an entirely different woman from what she was among her courtiers. There she would tolerate no flattery and was controlled only by reason and good sense. As practical as Burley himself and as hard-working and business-like, cold, intellectual, and clear-headed, utterly without enthusiasm. Perhaps the greatest service which Elizabeth rendered to the English nation and the cause of civilization was her success in establishing Protestantism as the religion of the land against so many threatening obstacles. In this she was aided and directed by some of the most enlightened divines that England ever had. The liturgy of Cranmer was re-established, preferments were conferred on married priests, the learned and pious were raised to honor, eminent scholars and theologians were invited to England, the Bible was revised and freely circulated, and an alliance was formed between learning and religion by the great men who adorned the universities. Though inclined to ritualism, Elizabeth was broad and even moderate in reform, desiring, according to the testimony of Bacon, that all extremes of idolatry and superstition should be avoided on the one hand, and levity and contempt on the other, that all church matters should be examined without sophistical niceties or subtle speculations. The basis of the English church, as thus established by Elizabeth, was halfway between Rome and Geneva. A compromise, I admit. 
but all established institutions and governments accepted by the people are based on compromise. How can there be even family government without some compromise, inasmuch as husband and wife cannot always be expected to think exactly alike? At any rate, the church established by Elizabeth was signally adapted to the wants and genius of the English people. Evangelical on the whole in its creed, though not Calvinistic, unobtrusive in its forms, easy in its discipline, and aristocratic in its government. Subservient to bishops, but really governed by the enlightened few who really govern all churches. Independent, Presbyterian, or Methodist supported by the state yet wielding only spiritual authority, giving its influence to uphold the crown and the established institutions of this country, conservative yet earnestly Protestant. In the 16th century it was the church of reform, of progress, of advancing and liberalizing thought. Elizabeth herself was a zealous Protestant, protecting the cause whenever it was persecuted, encouraging Huguenots and not disdaining the Presbyterians of Scotland. She was not as generous to the Protestants of Holland and Trance as we could have wished, for she was obliged to her husband, her resources, and hence she often seemed parsimonious, but she was the acknowledged head of the reform movement in Europe. Her hostility to Rome and Roman influence was inexorable. She may not have carried reforms as far as the Puritans desired, and who can wonder at that? Their spirit was aggressive, revolutionary, bitter, and, pushed to its logical sequences, was hostility to the throne itself as proved by their whole subsequent history until Cromwell was dead. And this hostility Burley perceived as well as the Queen, which doubtless led to severities that our age cannot pretend to justify. The Queen did dislike and persecute the Puritans, not, I think, so much because they made war on the surplus, liturgy, and divine right of bishops, as because they were at heart opposed to all absolute authority both in state and church, and when goaded by persecution would hurl even kings from their thrones. It is to be regretted that Elizabeth was so severe on those who differed from her. She had no right to insist on uniformity with her conscience in those matters which are above any human authority. The Reformation, in its severest logical consequences, in its grandest deductions, affirms the right of private judgment as the mighty pillar of its support. All parties, Presbyterian as well as Episcopalian, sought uniformity. They only differed as to its standard. With the Queen and ministers and prelates it was the laws of the land with the Puritans, the decrees of provincial and national synods. Hence, if Elizabeth insisted that her subjects should conform to her notions in the ordinances of Parliament and convocations, she showed a spirit which was universal. She was superior even in toleration to all contemporaneous sovereigns, Catholic or Protestant, man or woman. Contrast her persecutions of the Catholics and Puritans with the persecution by Catherine de' Medici and Charles IX and Philip II and Ferdinand II or even with that under the Regiment Murray of Scotland, when churches and abbeys were ruthlessly destroyed. Contrast her Archbishop of Canterbury with the religious dictator of Scotland. She kindled no auto de fe, like the Spaniards. She incited no wholesale massacre, like the demented fury of France. She had a loving care of her subjects that no religious bigotry could suppress. She did not seek to exterminate Catholics or Puritans, but simply to build up the Church of England as the shield and defense and enlargement of Protestantism in times of unmitigated religious ferocity, a Protestantism that has proved the bulwark of European liberties, as it was the foundation of all progress in England. In giving an impulse to this great emancipating movement, even if she did not push it to its remotest logical end, Elizabeth was a benefactor of her country and of mankind, and is not unjustly called a nursing mother of the church, being so regarded by Protestants, not in England merely, but on the continent of Europe. 
when was ever a religious revolution effected or a national church established with so little bloodshed when have ever such great changes proved so popular and so beneficial and i may add so permanent after all the revolutions in english thought and life for three hundred years the church as established by elizabeth is still dear to the great body of english people and has survived every agitation and even many things which the puritans sought to sweep away the music of the choir organs and chants even the holidays of venerated ages are now revived by the descendants of the puritans with ancient ardor showing how permanent are such festivals as christmas and easter in the heart of christendom and how hopeless it is to eradicate what the church and christianity from their earliest ages have sanctioned and commended end of section three